welcome to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and I'm just so thrilled to introduce you to my guest today, Dr. Christina Cleveland. Now, I had originally planned to share this conversation later this month when we wrapped up this series on Black motherhood. But friends, her new book is just so good and her voice is just so powerful. I didn't want to wait to introduce you to her and her new book, God is a Black Woman. And quite honestly, the heart of Dr. Cleveland's voice and message fits right along with the series about Black motherhood. Before we jump into the conversation, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys towards liberation. She's truly a weaver of Black liberation and the sacred feminine, and her new book, God is a Black Woman, just released this week. In our conversation, we talk about her pilgrimage across central France in search of ancient Black Madonna statues and what led her to take that journey. In her book and this vulnerable conversation, she shares her story of being immersed in the white male God culture for much of her life and how she finally found hope, healing, and liberation as she discovered the sacred Black feminine. Dr. Christina Cleveland, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And like I just told you, I'm a little nervous and a little fangirly because I just, I admire you, your work so, so much. And I just, I'm really kind of pinching myself that I get to talk to you today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your voice. Thank you for your book. I also want to say, I read your chapter addressed to white women, and I'm really going to, I'm really <laughs> trying not the white sprawl we'll talk about. And I'm going to be like, mm, no, not my, not my part to claim this, even though I can relate. You're very clear about that point of your message as well. So we'll talk about that when we dive a little bit more into your story. Before we talk about your story, your book, can you just give my listeners a quick intro, who you are, where you live, all of that? Yeah, um, I'm Christina Cleveland, and I currently live in the Boston area, although I'm, I'm very, um, I go where the land calls me, and sometimes that changes. So I actually just last week got back from almost three months in central France, the same place where I was, where I did my 2018 pilgrimage. I keep returning there um, because I just have... So, um, so much more to, to learn in that space, but yeah, I'm a creator and a writer and a social psychologist and a theologian and a multi hyphenate yes, <laughs> to all, be very millennial. <laughs> all the things you have quite the impressive resume. You, um, you've done a lot and seen a lot and written a lot. And we will at the end, put links to all your Patreon and all the other places that you can be found but for today. We're going to be talking about your new book that just released yesterday called God is a black woman. So congratulations on that. I can't even imagine how much that is just the process of birthing that. And I read on your Patreon where you said like, you're, is your offering good enough? Does my story matter? Like all those feelings. And I just want to tell you, yes, yes, <laughs> it, it more than matters. It's amazing. And we're going to kind of go back a little bit in your story. Cause a lot of this podcast is about telling parts of our story to get where we are today. Mm-hmm. And your book goes into a lot of detail on that. So of course, we're just going to kind of touch the surface on this, but I think it's just so powerful, especially in this age when so many people are, I don't want to keep using that term, deconstructing faith, but we are, our faith is unraveling. We're being aware of the white supremacy, the white Jesus we've been married to all of that. And you had a real awakening in that 
several years ago. You were a writer for Christianity Today, which I didn't even know because I didn't follow or know you in that phase of things. So I was like, wow, she really, she really was immersed in the white patriarchy culture. And you talk about that. So you embark on this 400 mile journey pilgrimage in 2018 to central France. You had a crisis of faith. You're trying to, you're, you want to see these black Madonnas in search of the healing of the sacred black feminine. Let's go back and talk a little bit about what got you to that point. Yeah, to that point of desperation mm-hmm. to walk mm-hmm. 400 miles across the That's France right. Cause I'm like, oh, I've, I've read the books, That's but like she's totally like. totally like normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not outdoorsy, you know, like I'm like, I speak zero French. Even oh though my. I keep going back, I'm, I, I haven't learned it because I'm like, I don't need to learn another colonizer language. Like, I'm just going to go and like, I have a mean, I, I have a mean pantomime. <laughs> so <laughs> like, funny. Thanks to my evangelical days. <laughs> yeah. And you just say you're not outdoorsy. This was a rough journey. I was thinking about this morning. I'm like, no, this was the mountains. This was not like, totally. oh, a little stroll like and country. skipping stroll. This was like miserable at yeah. times. But I thought it was such an example of how hard it is to let go of this white supremacy male God to find the sacred femininity, the sacred black femininity. It's not easy at all. Yeah, and the work of reclaiming my antagonized relationship to my body and to to the earth. So yeah, so much beauty, but I think, um, you know, it's interesting because we're, we're just commemorating the last couple of weeks, Trayvon Martin's death. I can't believe it's been 10 years, you know, and mm-hmm. I think my first awakening around white Jesus came then in the wake mm-hmm. of that, when I started to see people who claimed were family, yeah. claim we're all part of the body of Christ together, seeing how they responded, how much they defended George Zimmerman, how much they really just would not listen to black people about the reality of our lives. And this was the first time in my adult life that there was like a real national conversation about this where you literally Mm -hmm. couldn't miss it. And there were so many opportunities to join in that conversation. So to see how much people who claim to love me just completely reject my humanity in that moment was a huge awakening. And so then I spent several years, including, you know, when that time when I was, um, the period of time when I was a columnist for Christianity Today, really kind of like talking about the problem of white Jesus. But it wasn't until the run-up to Trump's election that I really started looking at gender, the, the gender of Jesus, the gender of the Christian God as a problem. And part of that is that, you know, um, as a Black woman in so many American spaces, I can either show up as a woman or or Black, but never both at the same time. So I kind of had to choose, like, do I want to be, do I want to make my justice work about Blackness or about my gender? And that's part of the reason why I just never really looked at gender because I I'd always felt like, oh, I, I can only tackle one thing at a time. Right. But when I saw Trump saying racist and xenophobic things. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, the church is not going to care about that because the church is racist and xenophobic. Mm-hmm. I know this. Mm-hmm. When Trump started talking about assaulting bl- white women, I was like, surely they're precious little white women. They're going to come. I mean, white femininity is like a fruit of the spirit. You know what I mean? Like they're going to protect this. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and when I saw those same people who threw me under the bus with Trayvon Martin throw white women under the bus, I was like, okay, the problem is not just Jesus's gender. I'm sorry, race. The problem is also Jesus's gender. And yes. that's when I realized, which was a wonderful wake up call for me too, just into the intersectionality of God. Mm-hmm. which relates even more to my intersectionality as a black woman. So it really felt like a wonderful awakening 
while also being horrifying Mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really Um, scary. I mean, it is. And and I'm not going to lie when you just, I just got goosebumps when you said, okay, then when Trump attacked white women, that was my wake up call. Yeah, it was. I'm in that boat of like, wait, 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 what is that? Wait, us white women too. Like, and that was my, that's what I say, living in the Bible Belt and the Trump presidency were totally my like, wait, what is this church and this politics and this right-wing thing that I've been proclaiming as my God for so long? For black women though, they've obviously felt it way, way before forever, really in this country. Um, So yeah. The first time though, that it it integrated my, my blackness with my femaleness. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was really powerful. And so that's when I said, I need to start looking for images of God that are not white and male. Specifically, I'm looking for black female images of God. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't have to look far um, because they're everywhere. But the first one that came to mind for me um, was the black Madonna. Mm -hmm. And so I I definitely spent like a year and a half or so studying, researching all that good stuff. But eventually I was just like, I have to go see her because the thing about America is you see images of white male God everywhere, everywhere on the dollar Mm -hmm. bill, Mm -hmm. in churches, in museums, you just have to take a glance at our Supreme court and you know, who, what, what's, yeah. what's the highest moral mind in the, in yeah. the land, right. you know, like if you're right. thinking about sacredness and morality and who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong and who gets to be on that court and how much do you have to approximate white maleness in order to be on that court? Why do we have Clarence Thomas, for example? Right. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of, there's so many images of that, that I really wanted to encounter images to counteract that. And yeah. So and we don't, especially white evangelicals don't like that in the United States here. When you start challenging that, like you talked about in the, in another awakening for you was in 2016 in that Christianity today article, when you wrote right. about mm-hmm. God, um, or excuse me, Jesus's blackness, which is like, that's a known. It's just, a fact. and you got more hate mail than ever for that. What does yeah. that say? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, these people, there's a lot going on here, you know? Um, and I'm not safe. And now I finally know mm-hmm. why I've been afraid my whole life. And it's like, I just, mm-hmm. throughout my liberation journey, I've just been like, man, little Christina be knowing, you know, because like I was, I had like a side mm-hmm. eye all the time when I was a kid. I never said anything because I learned to silence it because they would yeah. get me into trouble if I asked questions. Yeah. But there were so many times where I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And I, and now I look back and I'm like, wow, she was, that was the sacred yeah. black feminine in me affirming you talk about goddess of the side eye that that relates right there so let's go back a little bit to your childhood because what i love is you're so honest in this book about the ways you upheld it you're not like oh i've always been this like black female feminine liberator like no you lived your life upholding it audrey lord (laughs) right right like i was born i just came out of the womb being like i'm liberated (laughs) no you were born into that and i think that's very eye-opening especially as a white woman to see like oh gosh this pimp this white supremacy, white male God permeates all families, not just my white family. And that's so honest of you to share. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit, especially your eating disorder. I mean, you talk about white male God ruled your house and then your life that you learned to starve yourself before you learn to read. And as someone also that has dealt with an eating disorder, I'm just like, I could tear up just how vulnerable you are in sharing and being so honest about that and the ties of that to white male God and fear. So if you don't mind just sharing a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was like a real awakening for me to realize that I'm not safe from white male God in my own family, Mm. you know, and I think that's true for all of us to a certain extent, which just goes to show that white male God um, is 
present everywhere and can sort of morph into and shape shift. And Mm -hmm. we have to be really careful about just thinking that he's only in white men, you know, but um, yeah. So I grew up in a really conservative Christian home. Um, I kind of grew up half in the white evangelical church, half in the black Pentecostal holiness movement, which theologically is almost exactly the same as white evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. some cultural differences and the black church is more interesting, obviously, but in terms of theology, very similar, very much like, you know, anti-body, anti, um, anti-sexuality, anti, uh, kind of a patriarchal hierarchy right, right. way of thinking about faith. And so my parents, bless their hearts, they, you know, I think they were, they were young, young, young parents, um, really struggling in their own marriage for reasons that make all the sense in the world, if you know their story. And they were afraid that we would run into some of the same marital problems that they were struggling through. And so they, they believed in their hearts, especially that, that, that black Pentecostal sort of holiness, like the problem is we didn't pray enough. Like prayer is the answer to every problem um, exclusively, basically, you know? And so they, they told us starting when I was five, you guys have to, we're going to start fasting and praying every Sunday for your future spouses, (laughs) which just befuddled me on so many levels, but Mm -hmm. I, I'm five. I don't even know what the future is. That's literally a cognitive concept that I cannot understand. I don't even have like object permanence understanding mm-hmm. like if you take away my ball I'm literally going to think that it's permanently uh-huh. gone you know what I mean uh-huh. <laughs> like, uh-huh. I can't, like, <laughs> yeah but we're going to go ahead and start fasting and praying yeah about mm-hmm. the future yeah, yes that's right something and your totally, spouse <laughs> yeah because you totally have the cognitive ability to understand that uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. so I was just confused but I wasn't confused about the fact that I was starting um and so mm-hmm. one but but the thing that was interesting is how my my parents really married the ice the idea of fasting from food with holiness and being good yeah. enough for God to give you a good thing which is a spouse which is the best thing. So I was very quickly sort of taught that my holiness and my desirability are wrapped up in how beautiful I am Mm -hmm. to the male gaze and also how beautiful I am to God based on my sort of piety. And that being a white male God, it wasn't hard to just be the white male gaze, you know, like I have to please the white male gaze. And so, um, yeah, I mean, my first binges were at church just because I was starving and um, we had communion bread and the communion bread was good. (laughs) And so I learned at a very early age that I could numb all of the fear and anxiety that I experienced in my like fairly toxic family by just eating. And so not only did it solve some of the hunger pains that now I know through therapy were like abusive. Like you can't make a kid fast. Mm-hmm. That's not cool. Mm-hmm. And, and Muslims don't make their kids fast during Ramadan, you know? <laughs> so it's mm-hmm. kind of like, Oh, mm-hmm. this is interesting. And so not only did it, did it sort of like satiate the abusive hunger pains, it also satiated my emotional pain. Yeah, um, And that yeah. just, just sort of got me started. And so I really, I, I, had, a, I had a pretty, I was in a f- intense eating disorder from like five until about 34. I know how hard that is to talk about and share as someone who has dealt with that too. And I just admire so much. You were willing to share that part of it because it is such it's such a crucial part, the whole purity and our looks and you share the history of that with white femininity. I mean, it's so deep, Mm, you know, and you, you experience getting, Oh, the praises for when you lost weight and the critiques. Oh, you're really pretty for a black girl or yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, you have that intersectionality too, that I don't, as a white woman who suffered with an eating disorder, you have the whole other level of being a black woman that suffered with it, which is so, so intense that ultimately this, this, 
helped your healing and liberation from that, this journey of like discovering. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I never, I don't think I could have healed from my, or I I don't think I could have even gone on any sort of recovery journey with my bulimia, my exercise bulimia and, um, and like compulsive restricting if I had not encountered the sacred black feminine. Because she's the only person, as you know, and as you've just said, I mean, there's something really special about eating disorders. They're very personal. They're very um, all-encompassing. And to give up something like that, or I would also liken it to maybe like a a very serious drug addiction or something like that, in order to give Mm -hmm. that up and trust that um, that you can live life without it, you have to really believe in a higher power. Then that higher power has to be straight up airtight. I had to believe this was a higher power that 100% had my back. And the truth is that prior to encountering the sacred Black feminine, I was essentially an agnostic, which is like no disrespect to agnostics, but I was calling myself a believer. Mm -hmm. But really, when I was like sort of dating white Jesus, I was just kind of like, well, I know you're probably not going to really have my back. So I'm going to like praise you and like do the prayers and like do go through the motions. But on the side here, I'm hustling to make sure that I'm covering my own ass because mm-hmm. I actually don't believe you, you're, you care about me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so kind of this like agnosticism, whereas with an eating disorder, if you're going to give that, if you're going to even attempt to give it up, you have to really surrender and say, I'm not going to hold on to any of this anymore. I'm not going to be behind the scenes trying to make anything happen. Cause I tried that. I'm like, in an, I'm like really good at being human. I reinvent myself all the time. I like try new things and become good at them. I have degrees and all these different things. Like I can do it, except I can't do this. This Mm -hmm. is one thing that is, that has beat me over and over and over again. And it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. I'm beat when it comes to food. Mm -hmm. And I remember years. I'm sure you this. Yeah. Yeah. Years. Right. I mean, so I've tried every diet. I've tried every tool. I've tried every, you know, I've, I've done the like intuitive eating, whatever. Right. You know, like I've done it all but in every other area of my life. Me doing the most has always led to success. You were saying that I was just thinking like how many years did I pray to God to take away my eating disorder, mm-hmm. but what God was I praying to this white male God and still living under that veil, you know, cause I thought, I don't know if I'll ever actually totally be over my eating disorder. Like I always feel like it's a little bit going to control, but I think because it's just so hard to break free of this American white male patriarchy, white Mm -hmm. supremacy that we've been born Mm -hmm. and ingrained our lives into. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to say with that, because, you know, you talk about that because people could be listening like, why, why would her parents be doing that? But I think You talk Mm -hmm. about just how fear is such a motivator too of this white male Mm -hmm. God. And that's what your parents were, you know, they had fear to be Mm -hmm. successful. They knew what the life of a black woman, especially was your mom did. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure that is what ruled so much of their motivation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, my parents gave me every good thing they could, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think my, especially my dad, he, he really, really, really wanted me to feel valued in the world. And I think the only way he knew to do that was to try to help me win at the game of white patriarchy. And to a certain extent, he did that with his own life and probably felt like that was the best option. And so it was a really powerful moment for me to realize that my parents, they didn't teach me to get off the plantation. They taught me to become the most powerful black person on the plantation. 
And that's, that's a very different line of lessons and a very different skill set. So I was basically taught, it was, it was a liturgy of conforming to white patriarchy mm-hmm. as a way of survival, you know? Um, and that's and- so powerful. You use that analogy in the book, the whole plantation. And I'm sure mm-hmm. so many, especially of the black readers, the women that read this book will be like, yeah. And maybe I'm still doing that because you're really honest. Like one of the lines you say, I was a white male God in blackface. That's your, you saying that in the book, because you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is what my parents raised me to be. And I was so successful in within that patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So do you mind sharing just a little bit about that? Or people are like, what is, what does that sure. even mean? She was a white male guy yeah. in blackface. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was really good at conforming to the ways of white male God, which is basically being at war with your body. So doing your body, dominating the spaces that you're in, being the best, being the best which also means being better than everybody else. Um, perfection, not needing anything, um, complete conformity. These are all values of white patriarchy. You have to stick with what tradition and consensus is. Don't stay in your lane, participate in the hierarchy. So make sure you're respecting and not questioning the people who have power over you and don't need anything. Be perfect, you know, all those sorts of things. And so I became that person. My whole model of spiritual leadership was based off what I learned in my church spaces, which is if you're leading anybody spiritually, you are literally in charge of them and you have a right to just tell them what to do. I mean, you are doing really well on that plantation. My gosh, look at all your accomplishments and degrees except that I was dying. Mm. Yeah. It's so funny because you know, that there's that um, common phrase, black don't crack, you know, especially when people are talking about black women who are aging like me, I'm 41, but people very rarely assume that I'm 41, Mm -hmm. but we crack on the inside (sighs) and I was cracking on the inside. And so, you know, because, because we, um, that, I think that stereotype about black women is just gives society even more ammunition to not care for our humanity. And this probably makes this probably, you know, contributes to why we go to the doctor. The doctor literally doesn't believe us when we say I'm in pain, you know, and that kind of stuff. Or, mm-hmm. you know, there were times when I was literally crying out for help, but people were like, oh, you're a strong black woman. You got this, you know? And so I, but I was cracking on the inside and, um, one of the things that happened about a year before I went on my pilgrimage is my digestive system 100% shut down. I was bedridden for a whole summer, the summer of 2017. Never had digestive issues, was like super regular before that. And then all of a sudden, just everything stopped. And the doctors didn't know what was going on. And so that's part of the reason why I was bedridden for the summer, because I was just so constipated. I was in so much pain, I couldn't even get out of bed. Um, and we did all the tests and all the colonoscopies and all the things. And they, they just basically concluded it's just trauma. Yeah. And I was talking to one of my colleagues at Duke, one of my female colleagues who became a friend. And she said, your life, your body's telling you that your life is literally indigestible. Mm. And I had been running and running and running, doing all this just so-called reconciliation work, really just getting stepped on, you know, and, and abused by these white communities, but doing all this so-called reconciliation work, not dealing with the trauma from my childhood, not dealing with the trauma that I deal with as just a black woman going about my life in America. And my body was like, I quit. And actually I'm amazed that, my, that it took that long for my body to quit. When I go back and look at all the, the damage that my body incurred in the 36 or seven years before it finally just said, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I heard you know, your interview looked, yesterday with Austin Channing Brown. And it's just like, you talked about being a bridge builder and you're like, the bridges get stepped on. Get stepped on. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I actually heard that from a black evangelical pastor. 
Okay. I remember hearing that and being like, oh, good. Now I have a theology to like keep going. It mm. felt encouraging at the time. I have a, I have a purpose. Really? Your purpose is to get stepped on? Clearly, you have not encountered the sacred black feminine. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Clearly, no. you have not encountered the sacred black feminine. If your purpose in life is to get stepped on, that is a white male God bumper sticker right there. <laughs> um, true. And That's so, so true. Let him walk all over you. <laughs> on his like horrible gas guzzling Hummer or whatever, you uh-huh. know? Uh-huh. And so I just realized on the outside, it looked like I was super successful. And I think that's what's so gross about white male God is that, you know, you see these people on a big stage. And then what happens is other people of color would, would be like, oh, she's, she's doing it. That's the life I want. I just have to get, I literally would get emails from people. I got an email from one guy, a black guy who does a lot of speaking work in the Christian world. And the um, subject line of his email was teach me rabbi. And the, in, the interior of the email, the content was, I want to learn how to be on stages and make money like you do. Show me what you did, which is so gross on so many levels, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But it just goes to show that there were, that in, I was being propped up as a mascot in this world and people thought I was actually the star when really I was just the mascot. Yeah. And you were sacrificing yourself, your true, true self. Every, everything. Com- and compromises left and right. You're going back to fear because you had a lot to lose by giving that up. So Salary, much to lose. status, yeah. all of that. And as a single black woman, I mean, I'm like a typical single black woman. I don't have family wealth to fall on. Mm-hmm. I don't have, there isn't a family home I can go live in if I can't afford my rent. I don't have grandparents with money. You know, all the things that middle-class white people take for granted, essentially, I don't have any of that. And so if anything, people in my family are relying on me, like my sister, you know? And so part of it was really this, like, not just concern for myself, but also well, what happens if I, if I can't pay my bills, but who's going to pay my sister's hospital bills when she has another mental health cycle? Right. You know, like these are the sorts of questions. And because I wasn't connected to a divine who got me, who had my back, I was afraid. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I was afraid. Yeah. What's going to happen if I actually speak my truth and walk into who I really am? As far as I knew, the whole world would. Right. Because that's what you had been taught too, about this white male God. Mm-hmm. So for people that are listening are like, what, what does she actually mean by the sacred black feminine? How would you de- define that? I mean, obviously yeah, they, they yeah. read her book because you will understand, but how would you define that in a nutshell, what you were searching for, what you found? Totally. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a term that I coined, so I understand why people don't know what it is. The sacred black feminine is the God who stands with and is for black women because she herself is a black woman. And the sacred black feminine is interfaith. Lots of different spiritual and religious traditions have um, lineages and streams of the divine feminine who's also black or brown or dark from Hinduism to Islam to Buddhism to Christianity to indigenous African spiritualities, indigenous American spiritualities. In my book, I talk a lot about the black Madonna who's one iteration of the sacred black feminine, but she's not all that the sacred black feminine is. But if you want to look to an example of the sacred black feminine, the black Madonna is a really wonderful example. And that's what you went on your pilgrimage searching for because they each had represented different things. So going mm-hmm. back to that definition that you just gave and thinking about your chapter addressed to white women, because I'm sure my mm-hmm. white listeners will be like, yes, that, that is what I want. She, I'm, my God is a black woman too. 
almost every white woman says that. <laughs> as I say in my gonna, book. We're not going to say they, that, okay? We're not, because there's a lot that goes into that. You say, unlike white male God, the sacred black feminine doesn't exclude anyone from her holy huddle, that she specifically declares black women to be sacred. She affirms the sacredness of all. So that doesn't mean white women cannot have a part of this or ha- say their God is a black woman, but there's a lot that goes into that because... We need to talk about the white femininity is white male God's secret weapon. And like I alluded to at the beginning of this podcast, the whole white sprawl. So let's talk about that for the white listeners. Yeah, I mean, there's a real problem of of appropriation in religion. There's a problem of appropriation everywhere with white people. But because so many people are awakening to the reality that their white ancestral religion of Christianity for many people, at least recent ancestry is Christianity. And they're realizing, oh, this sort of stuff and it's poisonous. So let's just throw it out the window and let's just gra- latch on to another spirituality. So all of a sudden I'm, you know, indigenous or all of a sudden I'm going to join these like new agey movements that are really literally just stealing from indigenous communities. Or all of a sudden I'm a Buddhist. I'm, I'm going to go join a Buddhist community. First of all, that doesn't solve any problems because white people practicing Buddhism are just as terrible as white people practicing Christianity. <laughs> the structures are still there. The problem is whiteness. The problem is not the religion, right? But then also it kind of gets to this idea of what I call white sprawl. You know, like in the book, I use the, the term, which is ontological expansiveness, but I, I nickname it white sprawl to make it more accessible to people. It's kind of like suburban sprawl. Let's just build and colonize and take over and it's not going to be cute and we're not going to care at all about the local flora and fauna and we're not going to care about the indigenous people who've inhabited this space. We're just going to start putting up malls and we're just going to start putting up Costco's and just take over. And people do that with spirituality. And um, it's, it's horrible. And I, I mean, the, I, gosh, there's hardly any books written about the Black Madonna that are written by non-white people. And when I first started looking into the Black Madonna, of course, as a scholar, I'm a voracious reader. I started reading all these books and there are all these white women just fawning over the Black Madonna, implicitly and explicitly racist in their book and in their presentations (laughs) and also just completely ignoring her blackness. Yeah, the Mm -hmm. books like When God Was a Woman and Wild Mercy. Mm -hmm. The great mm-hmm. cosmic mother. I'm like, yeah, but these are all white women. So that's why I was so everyone was white. Careful. Everyone who was writing about the Black Madonna that I found was was more or less white. Um, the only person who was writing about the Black Madonna who seemed to take seriously her blackness and her black body was Matthew Fox. Mm-hmm. The old Catholic mm-hmm. theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone else, it was just she's a black light. Mm-hmm. She's a dark, a dark space that you can take your grief to. She helps you when you're dying. All, it's like her body is female. Yep. But, but her blackness is disembodied. Mm-hmm. Right? Her, her body is female, but her body's not black. Mm-hmm. And so um, I really, that hurt. That hurt because I was a refugee from an anti-black space. Yeah. And I was just like anybody else leaving white Christianity, trying to find a place that felt safe. I finally encounter an image of God that's literally for me. And all I see is these white women stealing her and whitewashing her. And that's what I mean, where it's like this, the problem is not the religion or spirituality. The problem is whiteness. And so I think one of the, one of the points I was trying to make in the God of white women chapter, which is hilarious because my editor who's white, I had a a diverse editorial team, but my lead editor at Harper was white. 
I, she was like, yeah, you know, I, I feel like we'd be missing out if we didn't say something to white women. And so then when I came back with that chapter, I, I'm not sure that was the chapter. I'm not sure that's what she envisioned. But I was like, if you want me to say something to white women, this is what I'm going to say. <laughs> I can say something to white women. <laughs> I was like, not exactly hands off, but tread carefully. Uh-huh, because this uh-huh. is sacred and white women in historically have not taken anything that has to do with black femininity seriously and sacredly. Yeah. We've and always they have the tool been, of the white male God to destroy totally. the We've black. always just been the help. We've been the help yeah. to white to black yeah. to white women. We've been the help at best. We've been a threat at worst. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so so you can't just latch on to a God who looks like me and experiences the world like me without actually dealing with the re- with and and practicing the reparations that separate you from me and that whole lineage of your mom and her mom and her mom and her mom and even if they came from Sweden and they weren't here doing it the fact that they still benefited from it and the fact that I'm at the bottom of the totem pole in white male god world because white women have participated in that and upheld that And so I think to practice the sacred black feminine as a white woman means getting in the formation around reparations for black women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Say that again. That's that's what it means. So important. Practice practice the sacred black feminine for white women means to get into formation around reparations for black women. That's what worship looks like. That's what devotion looks like. It's not sitting at a retreat center humming. It's not reading more books. It's not wearing a t-shirt that says, I met God and she is black or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's literally practicing reparations from a place of humility and non-white saviorism and learning and listening and dismantling. And then going and talking to your men, please. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's so important what you just said because i think as white women and i see it we're just like name it and claim it oh that sounds good that will rescue me Mm -hmm. name it and claim it and that's just well anything in our world if a white woman wants it a white woman gets it i mean that's just the reality Mm -hmm. and that's why black men got lynched all the time because a white woman would see a black man would want him and then her husband would lynch him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we see it i think you, you talked about that in your book like the white women's i'm uncomfortable supersedes more important than yeah any then I literally can't breathe Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. going back to the black madonnas in your book you talk about that one had been whitewashed whitewashed. a lot of them have been whitewashed yeah she's the one that I visited on my trip that was whitewashed but the black the famous black madonna in chart is like probably the most famous cathedral in France she was whitewashed like about 10 years ago so and you see protection around that one was more than others Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's like a, it was like Fort Knox up in there. Like you couldn't even get anywhere near her, even though like, I mean, yes, she's a famous black Madonna. She's probably one of the, you know, top 10 most famous out of the 450. So she's definitely famous. But I mean, there are other ones that are way more at risk and just as famous that don't have any security, but they're the black ones. So it's just interesting that the white, the whitewashed one is the one that's so protected when the actually vulnerable black ones are completely unprotected. Yeah. Which is just like a metaphor for life, mm-hmm. right? Like this is how black, this is how white femininity is weaponized against black femininity. But the thing that I love about the sacred black feminine is that she really is not like white male God. She's not petulant like white male God. And she, I don't think she's afraid of white femininity. Mm-hmm. And so she says, come, we're going to learn something. I'm going to speak some truth to you. You're going to be transformed. Or because if you're not transformed, you're not going to be comfortable. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to want to leave anyway. The fire's too hot. The fi- her fire's too hot. 
if you're a phony white lady just trying to get in it on because you're on like an eat, pray, love thing or something, like you're not going to, you're just going to get burned. Her fire is too hot. But if you are open and you are willing, then she's like, come, mm-hmm. like I'm for everyone. Yeah. And I'm not threatened by you. And you'll learn just like we all learn. I mean, as a Black woman who has been so shaped by white patriarchy, I've had to unlearn so many things too. She yeah. cherishes my hot mess. You just have to be able to, will- you have to be able to say I'm a hot mess. And be willing to let go of those things like that you let go of, that fear was keeping you there for whatever money or status or power. Mm-hmm. And like you said, a lot of people won't be able, women won't be able to handle that. I mean, it's, it's too hot. It's going to burn you. It is, but what's going to be left from that fire is more liberating and freeing than any, anything else on that journey. Yeah, it's going to burn away all the gross stuff. Yeah. If you can stick with it, but, but I mean, it's what she, what she invites us into is total transformation. I mean, even in the run up to this book, I had to really, really, really work through white patriarchal notions of success. And that's kind of what I was getting at in that Patreon article. You know, those questions of, well, if this magazine didn't pick up the piece that I wrote for them, do I matter? That is literally a white patriarchal question. And I had to every single day lay that at her altar and say, you know what? There's still parts of me that want to dominate, that want to take up all the space, that don't want to don't want to trumpet other people's success. There are real parts of me that are still like that. I ended up making a whole list of all the other people who's in, who are like my quote competition end quote, whose books are coming out this month and praying for them every single day by name that they would get everything that I want for myself in my book because that needs to be uprooted for me. And it's not like she's saying, oh, Christina, like I don't have your back if you don't do that. But I'm like, I want to be healed from this disease of competitiveness and needing to dominate and the an- being anti-nurturing and not stepping into my motherhood, which right. is about nurturing and creating and supporting and not making it about me <laughs> all the time which is so hard because that's everything we've been ingrained in us yeah Yeah, that's and that's literally the system of the publishing world because the fact of the matter is the publishing world is like no we're only going to promote one black book so you are in competition with that person who you suppose who's also your friend (laughs) you know living in that world the publishing world is constantly telling you resource scarcity resource scarcity resource scarcity (laughs) and her voice is always abundance abundance abundance. You can trust me. You don't have to be afraid anymore. I can get my book out. I can get my story out. You are not God. You are not God. You are not God. (laughs) Yes. And it's a constant though. It is a constant daily, hourly, minute by minute of saying no to that white male God voice and saying yes to everything that embodies a sacred black feminine. I surrender. Yes. Yes. So in your book, you go into the different, some of the different black Madonnas that you met and you give them nicknames like thick thighs and all of that. I'm not going to share too much of that so people can read it in your book, but I'd love to know, is there one in particular that just spoke to you the most or feel like impacted your liberation the most or that you just keep thinking about? Yeah. I mean, it's so People always ask me that question and I'm always like, ah, it's like, you know, it's like asking a parent who's your favorite kid. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I will say the Black Madonna who's in, now there's there's some Black Madonnas that are very special to me that aren't in the book because obviously Mm -hmm. my journey has continued and I even visited some Black Madonnas before I went on that pilgrimage. But the one in the book that I just keep returning to over and over and over again in the chapter that I've reread 
probably 20 times since I got my advanced reader copy in, in August, just about six months ago, is She Who Cherishes Our Hot Mess. Mm. I'm an Enneagram one, if you know the Enneagram. Um, You're so perfectionist, perfect- yeah. <laughs> perfectionist. And I like to um, have everything together. And it's really hard for me to accept my humanity. And it's really hard for me to be kind to myself, especially when I'm struggling and I have really high standards for myself. And so she who cherishes our hot mess is the one that I keep returning to over and over and over again, because I find that her message is one that I just need almost on a daily basis. Her official name is Our Lady of the Sick, which is a fairly common name for a Black Madonna. Um, but she's the Our Lady of the Sick in Vichy, France. But yeah, she who cherishes our hot mess is pretty, pretty special to me. I think in ter- another one that's really special is the Virgin Warrior. And that's actually not a nickname. That's her official name. Because um, as I've connected more with my inner moral authority, her, what she says about who is pure and that we all have access to purity and that our behaviors are not what makes us pure. It's our connection to the divine and to each other that makes us pure. Um, and also we're inherently pure because we're inherently connected. So it's not even like we need to be, we need to have a relationship with God to be and proper that we would call, you know, um, that's been really powerful too, to keep going back to her and just reminding myself, like I can trust my inner authority. Mm-hmm. That one's so very powerfully spoke to me. I kept copying and pasting her stuff, sending it to my 19 year old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I are working on something. She was raised in purity culture and just both of us coming out of that. And I was like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, you've got to read this, this part of it, Grace. Like you've been so immersed mm-hmm. in what white male God purity culture has told you. And look where this is mm-hmm. where it comes from. But look, look at this liberation. So I found that part very mm-hmm. powerful too. We didn't get into the purity culture. That's a whole part too of the white, the white male God. Yeah. And it's so funny because yesterday, Austin Channing Brown and I ended up talking quite a bit about that. I didn't know she was going to go there in our, in our conversation. I, I was surprised by that actually, but it was, I was, you know, pleasantly surprised. So if people are interested in that conversation, her, that recording is still up on her Instagram. Yes. It was funny because it was something like, wait, you're giving white people credit for claiming what they created. Yeah. She was like, she's like, I'm really grateful to white people for naming purity culture. I'm like, they created the monster and then named it. And now you're like clapping it. <laughs> no, minimum, we get accolades. It's so, so like, sad. That's the least you can do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, purity culture and relationship to body relationship to my humanity and my need. I mean, of course, I love like the mother of all bling and mm-hmm. how much she invites us to celebrate wherever we are on the journey. And this is a book that I think readers can keep going back to. I read the online copy because I got an advance and I was so glad to get my hard copy yesterday because I'm like, oh good, now I can mark it up and go back to some of these things. And I just, I can't encourage listeners enough to go to go get this book because we barely touched the surface today. To wrap it up, I would just love to know what would you say to women, even black women especially, that are stuck in that fear? Because there's a lot to give up when you break up with that white male God and white male Jesus. And I know, I know women that are stuck, still stuck there. Yeah, totally. I would say your journey is sacred and the timing is your timing and you're not behind. You're not ahead. You don't need to compare yourself to anyone else. I think my only encouragement would be every day. Can you find one way to connect more with abundance? Because in the white male God world, we're always taught about scarcity and fear. And so is there one thing that could teach you, you know, maybe, maybe the universe is inherently bent towards justice, like Martin Luther King said, and it could just be literally a thawing spring. Life comes after winter. Mm-hmm. I can trust that. 
because I think it's impossible to get off the plantation if you don't have a North Star. And so the question is, how can I start to cultivate a North? I don't have to have a fully formed theology and have this like deep devotion to the sacred black women. I don't have to go on a 400 mile walking pilgrimage, but what can I do to start to connect with something other than fear? And eventually that will grow in its time. And it'll probably grow exponentially and miraculously. And the amount of effort you put into it won't match up to how much it feels in terms of the impact. Cause that will be just like magic. <laughs> That's you've yeah, been on just, this journey for a long time. This wasn't an overnight, ever. like, Oh my gosh, I just discovered her. Or I went on a walk one year for 400 miles and now I'm here. Now this has been a long part of your journey. Yeah. At least the last 10 years, but really my whole life. Don't and I think I first started questioning some of the patriarchal order really almost 20 years ago in my early twenties. But yeah, no, you're right. It's been a long time <laughs> and I'm still on the journey, you know, and who knows, who knows where I'll go next, you know, right. and who, who knows how much it's, you know, it's so funny. You, I look back at things I wrote years ago and I'm like, redacted, redacted, redacted. You know what I mean? Because that's part of life. Keep growing and we keep changing. And I used to think that faithfulness meant never changing. Mm-hmm. And now I know faithfulness means changing. I have just appreciated (laughs) this hour with you so very much. Before we wrap up, just tell everybody where you can be found. Because besides the book, you're in a lot of other places. Yeah, so... You can go to my website, christinacleveland.com, sign up for my new newsletter, which is the sacred, the God is a Black Woman Freedom Journal, which is a biweekly newsletter just full of resources on how to continue on this journey. And we're also starting, um, a, in a month or so, we're starting a virtual pilgrimage and we're going to go to every single Black Madonna in the book. So it'll, it'll be kind of like an e-course format, but live, and we'll have lots of practices and ways to go deeper with each Black Madonna for transformation. And it'll be super fun. So join that. That's yeah. amazing. I did yeah. not know that. That's awesome. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to announce it for a few more weeks, but it's going to be mid-April. We're going to get started. Okay. And it'll be like an, eight, like an eight-week e-course or something. Okay. But of course, it'll be live. But of course, playbacks will be available. We'll be doing like breakout groups so people can connect with other people who are also on this journey and have WhatsApp groups so they can stay connected and that kind of stuff too. So it'll be really, really fun. I yeah. love that. I'm already yeah. excited. I believe I want to be there and join that because I saw awesome. on your on your um, website another e-course that you offer, and then some e-books I've actually bought that are yeah, beautiful totally. that I encourage people mm, to get because yeah. it's more it's pictures and a little bit. Yeah, it's nice to have the images. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. yeah, and of course, yeah, people can take my my e-course that's already on the site too. But this next one will be a live one, which will be fun. Okay, that's exciting. And you're on Instagram and all those places. And we'll make sure to put links. Wherever people are found, I'm usually there. (laughs) All of that. So, oh, again, thank you just for this time. I know it's a busy week launching your book. And I'm just grateful that you gave me this hour. So thank you, Dr. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us and listening in on this powerful conversation. I assure you her new book is even more impactful and soul satisfying than what we shared today. As always, you can find the link to purchase her book in the show notes for this episode at herstoryspeaks.com. Finally, keep an eye out this spring for details on the start of the new book club with my friend Tasha Hunter, where we plan to read and discuss God is a Black Woman.